October 28th, 2021. Here we go, here we go, here we go now. Welcome back, Overtimers. If you are new to the podcast, my name is David Oliver, and this is my playground, Overtime with Oliver. You are really going to enjoy today's conversation with Mike Claiborne. Worked with Mike a lifetime ago at KASP, and he's even busier now than he was then, as sharp as they come. Before moving on, happy 22nd, Stephen. Mom and I are very proud. A regional board denied giving the Delmore Loop Trolley another 1.26 federal grant, which would have been on top of the 37 in federal money already received. Joe, you revitalized the loop. I got to see Chuck Berry in the duck room because of you. Might be time to cut the cord. I was kind of done when the tracks and the trains didn't match up. It's been 10 years since David Fries could walk around his hometown and not get noticed. I don't know about you, but I like what Ollie's selling. So, who has more power in the U.S., Biden or Manchin? Now ask yourself, who cannot do what he wants without the other? Three things you should if you have not. Google Lewis and Clark white chili recipe. When it comes to the suggested red pepper flakes, double it and crush them into a dust. Liked it so much, we actually froze the leftovers after saving a week's worth in the fridge. Second... Mike and I talked a lot about radio in this one. If you have not seen the 1988 movie Talk Radio, fix that. Eric Bogosian stars in the play, starred in the play, teams up with Oliver Stone, who does wonders, moving cameras around, and half the movies is shot in the same one little bitty radio station studio. Ellen Green and John C. McGinley fill out a strong supporting cast. After you like it, go find Talked to Death. The Life and Murder of Alan Berg. Time now to pay some bills. Vital, as in, are you vital in your life? Who is vital in your life? Rick Fessler is trying to make the world a better place, one customized bottle at a time, and you can help. Vitallife.com. V-I-D-L-L-I-F-E dot com. Go read about the mission, type Oliver in the code, get your 10% off. And don't forget to put your charity of choice in the box if you have one. If you are new to OT, thanks for subscribing, sharing on Facebook, documenting St. Louis, and having a ball. And lastly, if you have not, go check out Klabes Online. Site's got a little something for everyone. New content keeps you coming back. You think as long as this episode is, we would have mentioned it, but time flew by. And it definitely is worth plugging. Klabes, C-L-A-I-B-S online.com. Okay, found a convenient time to sit down with Mike. Let me give you a little backstory. About 25 years ago at KSP, not a big deal, but I pissed Mike off about something he probably doesn't even remember, but I remember that it cost me getting to know him better. Part of the reason I was really looking forward to sitting down was to you know, find out more about Mike. It never came up. We had too much fun talking about all kinds of other stuff. Mike's got a great view on life, has surrounded him with folks that love him and he loves them back. We name drop and Mike tells some great stories. You'll probably enjoy some stories about folks you know. We actually said goodbye but kept talking after, and I thought that turned into a really strong eh, last five minutes or so of the show. Mike is friends with more famous people than were in my graduating class at Mizzou. He always dresses to the nines when it comes to being a broadcaster. Dude's a 10. Welcome to the Overtime family, Michael Claiborne. Go to Overtime. Overtime with Oliver, with my dad. Tell your friends. So anyway, man, you look good. Thanks, man. I've been working at it. 
I've been working at it. Yeah, gym, change the diet. Uh, no workouts are ever the same as far as routine is concerned. You know, one day I'm I'm lifting, another day I'm swimming, another day I'm boxing, another day I'm walking. Um, you know, you, you, you keep the body on guard. Boxing? Oh, yeah. There, there's some muscle. I remember there was a summer I would hit the bag, and that first couple of weeks just sore everywhere I didn't know yeah. I had muscles. Or you lack know what? Of that's that's a good point. People don't realize what it takes, starting with the fingertips all the way through your body, man. You know, especially if you're not hitting the bag right. In ballpark, how old are you now? How young are you now? Um, shoot, sixty-two. Missouri Sports Hall of Famer Michael Claiborne. Has that gotten old yet? Um, no, it hasn't. And thanks for having me. Uh, it, it's. It's it's been really humbling, to be honest with you. I mean, when I got the call, I thought the guy was joking at first because I I, I didn't anticipate it. And when I got the call, I kind of had to think about it. And for a guy who was in the talk business, David, it was one of the few times I was uh, speechless. So uh, I'm humbled by it. I, I accept it on behalf of so many other people who had an impact on my career and in my life. Uh, it, it's really more about them and the reflection that they've been able to bestow on me. We've had some other sports hall of famers on Howard Richards was on tiny Talked about, excuse me. Tiny, well, we I grew up with Howard. So, you know, it's funny. His dad, my dad knew each other. And now he and I have been knowing each other since high school. And, you know, uh, we've crossed paths on multiple occasions. And uh, that's, so we call him, his friends call him tiny. You've been doing this 30 plus. I got a feeling you got a lot of friends in the, in the hall. This is 40. This is year 40. 40. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've been blessed, man. There's a lot of people that I, I've been able to know. I had someone say to me recently, I wonder how much it would cost to get, get your phone because of all the numbers you have in it. And I never even thought about it like that. So that night I kind of started scrolling through it and I'm like, damn, yeah, I guess yeah, it is pretty cool. And But for me, I also keep people who are no longer with us uh, you know, some people take those names out of your phone. I don't because every time I'll scroll to see somebody, it'll give me a good memory of them. And uh, some days you need that. I don't delete them from Facebook. So when the birthdays come around, yeah, no prayer. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of your phone, dude, you got to be the most closest to the vest, well-connected dude I know. <laughs> well, <laughs> you've been around as long as me. You, you have a tendency to, to make acquaintances. Let's just put it that way. And no, there, there are acquaintances and then there are people you are friends with. There, there's a difference. Yeah. And, and you know what? It, it's it, as you put it that way, a lot of guys and ladies who I've gotten to know over time, you know, we, we may in some cases we kind of started around the same time or we had mutual friends and, you know, it, it's amazing you know, uh, how this has worked. And, and I think when I look at it, and, and you're not the first person to say that, the other person who, who it reminds me of is Jay Randolph Sr., mm. where if you say to Jay, well, I'm I'm going to, you know, Coldwater, Mississippi. Ah, yes, they've got a great golf course there. It's a great restaurant right down the road. The chef's name is, and he'll give you the whole dossier on a town that none of us have ever heard of. 
so I think Jay's got me beat. He he's as connected as anybody. But then again, Jay is what I think eighty seven. So he he's got a little bit of a head start on me. Try the catfish, but make sure it's farm catfish. You can't farm get the other, yeah, There you go. <laughs> <laughs> When's the last time you told uh, Jim Holder thank you? I called Jim Holder recently when I got the word, right. and uh, if it wasn't for Jim, I wouldn't be here because he gave me an opportunity to come on Camo X. And uh, that was February, February 7th, I believe, 1981. It was a Saturday night. And uh, one thing led to another. And Bob Hyland, the guy rest his soul, thought enough of me to give me another crack. So there have been three people at X that were instrumental in my opportunities. Uh, Jim Holder, obviously giving me a chance. Bob Hyland, who ran the whole thing. We'll never see another person like him in the business and uh, Rob Silverstein, who was the uh, sports producer, executive, he was a sports director, really. And Rob was uh, a young kid out of New York, uh, went to Syracuse. I think Rob was like 23. He wow. was a young guy. And now Rob is the executive producer for the People magazine show. On uh, It's syndicated. And he was also the executive producer for Access Hollywood for a number of years. And, you know, we've stayed in touch. But those three guys believed in me in an early stage. And, you know, as I got older, you know, you get to know Jack Buck and Mike Shannon and Bob Costas and people of that nature who have been very supportive. Uh, it's been an incredible run, even to this day with Steve Moore running things. Uh, uh, he and I go way back and uh, we're great friends, not just working with each other. So as I said to you at the beginning, man, I am blessed because there's so many people have had an impact on me uh, and they believed in me and gave me a chance, you know, especially in an era where there weren't a lot of people who looked like me. And so, you know, I had that to think about. Well, I didn't really think about it. I just want to show them have a good time. So it's, it's worked out. Unofficially, I think you own the title for person in St. Louis who has worked with the most other people. I think I own that title. I, th <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. And there's some people I've worked with twice. Um, there's only a handful of people that I will never, ever work with again. Uh, and yeah, there's only like, I think there's like two people I'll never, ever work with again. Everybody else, man, I enjoyed it. And, and that includes people like Kevin Slayton and uh, Brian McKenna and, and Rammer and, you know, just everybody, you know, because the first time I, when I've said that before, I said, Oh, you'll never work with Slayton again. Hey, you know what? I had a ball working with him. He's one of my favorite people. Um, and, and still a good friend. I don't see him enough. I, I saw him at a baseball dinner maybe two months ago. Uh, but you know, I had a great time with virtually everybody, man. I, I didn't have, uh, really any qualms about working with people. And as I mentioned, there's some people I've worked with twice and there are other people I wish I could work with again. So, uh, yeah, I do have that distinct title of having worked with more people than anybody else in the market. See, here's your other title, blues, Rams, Cardinals, slew basketball, umsel basketball. I think you're the only one. I think, with all five. Yeah. I think I got that one too. Uh, thanks to umsel. <laughs> And, and really, it created a great relationship that I have with Dan Reardon, who you may know uh, does golf reporting for Camo X. He and I started working together for American Cable Vision. That, that's when cable was big then. And ironically, Frank Viverito was a sports information director at UMSL at the time. They show you how things work. And Frank Viverito now head of the, the uh, sports commission here in St. Louis. So it was uh, a fun run. 
And I think that's the one thing, David, as you mentioned, is there's some other guys that have done a lot of those things, but I think I'm in the clubhouse with the lead as far as uh, having an opportunity to do all those sports along with uh, Rammer and I were part of the uh, Olympic festival that took place in St. Louis and he and I had the distinct honor of doing women's team handball and I believe water polo, women's water polo. I remember uh, trying to sell that damn thing and you couldn't sell the, you couldn't say Olympics. No, nah, no, nah, you couldn't. That's right. It was called the sports <laughs> festival, but it was like the junior Olympics. But the, right. you know, as we know, the Olympic committee has a title of that term and you couldn't use it, but man, we had a great time with it. Frank's been on. He had a good Skip Irwin story. You got a good Skip Irwin story? Oh, gosh. Every time you see him when the when when Umsa would go on the road, I remember one year they played at Stanford. And Skip, Skip came back and told everybody that Stanford wanted him to be the voice of the of the uh, the Cardinal. And everywhere he would go where there was a big school that Umsa would go play, they wanted me. They really wanted me. Uh <laughs> So, I remember my, he had the Nick job. He had the Nick's job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he had that job. I mean, he's had every job. So Skip was a little pissed off at me last time I saw him. So we're, we're playing. This is a few years ago. We had a doubleheader at the ballpark. And, you know, you had that downtime between games. So I didn't want to eat any more ballpark food. So I had one of the young guys, one of our interns, I said, hey, look, Here's some money. Go get as many white cows. Go get, go check with the other guys who worked at Camo X. Go see what they want. I'm paying for it. Go get them white castles. Cause you know, who turns down white castles? So we're in our little studio downstairs uh, on the lower level. And the guy comes back and skips following. What's this all about? So skip wanted, you know, I said, well, skip, you know, I got to feed these guys first. If there's anything left, you're more than welcome to share it with you. But, you know, I want to make sure they get there. He got pissed, man. He thought he should have been getting first dibs right then and there. So I don't think he said 10 words to me since then, which, you know, I can live with. But that wasn't my job to feed Skip at the time. Uh, I was taking care of my guys, you know, and, and ironically, there was more left over. But Skip didn't want to stick around to find out. So the hell with it. Everybody who's done what you've done has got a good road trip that went bad story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Rammer and I, when Bob Ramsey and I did uh, St. Louis U basketball, we're playing uh, Youngstown State. So we're going to fly out of, Youngstown, out of St. Louis and we're going to stay in Youngstown. But I had tickets to the Cleveland Cavaliers Chicago Bulls game. I told Rammer, I said, hey, look, we land in Cleveland. We'll just, you know, they'll take our bags at the hotel. We'll go. To, we're going to basketball game. It's cool. So now we our flight is delayed because there's a snowstorm in Cleveland. We miss the game. We get to the hotel, and uh, the guy says, "Oh, well, we didn't know if you guys were coming. We got to fire up the boiler for your room, your wing of the hotel." So you know, it's freezing outside. Right. There's no heat. And so now we're trying to figure out, we got to get something to eat. So Rammer says, let's get a cab. So the cab driver comes and he's trudging through the storm and everything's closed. And we get back to the hotel and we're kind of like on a hill. And he says, I got one more place we can go. I think it might be open. I, I doubt it, but we'll try. It's at the bottom of the hill. It's right. It's a restaurant right at the bottom of the hill. We rolled all around Youngstown and we finally go to this restaurant. 
and we walk in and everybody in our traveling party is there. <laughs> and we feel, look like a couple of dunces because we've taken a tour of Youngstown, which I don't think I've been back to since, but that was one. We had another one where we got to Detroit and uh, they didn't have a room for us. Uh, the guy who had the radio rights didn't have a room for us. So Rammer was like, well, we want a room. We're going to charge to this guy. So we got the presidential suite at this hotel. And this, this suite was like the size of a, of a condom. It was, it was mad. I bet it was 4,000, 5,000 square feet where we literally had a, each side to share to ourselves. Uh, and we charged it to him. We didn't care. It wasn't our money. And he should have done a better job of booking the hotel. So we've had some, some nightmares on, on the Billiken front. Um, boy, I'm trying to think of one I could tell about the Rams. Yeah, here's one. But it's not a bad story. So we had Gary Bender, who was uh, the voice of the Rams at the time. And we're playing Dallas, in Dallas. And so John Madden's doing the game. So Bender wants to do a one-on-one -on -one with John Madden, which, you know, at the time he was, he was hot stuff. So Bender wants to take the, he doesn't want, I think Jim Stasi was a producer. Yeah, it was Jim. So he didn't want Jim to go, just give me the recorder and I'll do it. All right, fine. You sure you don't want me to go? Because, you know, some of us aren't technically inclined. Okay. We don't know on from off. So he goes in, he does the interview, he comes out and now we go to dinner and this is all he's talking about. You know, I said, I did a one-on-one -on -one with Madden. Oh, it sounds like it should be pretty good. Stasi comes in. No, we get on the elevator and Stasi walks up. He says, Hey Gary, I need to talk to you. Say, what's wrong? That interview, it didn't, you didn't push the right button. We don't have anything. So he's so upset that he kicks the wall. And the next thing I know, the next day he's got a limp. He broke a foot. He broke part of his foot. <laughs> but had he let Jim go with him, you know, it would have been all right. But he when he claimed he was... that he did it during practice, he was toughing it out. Yeah, running around. yeah he was full of it. Uh, <laughs> he's a nice man. I liked him. He was he was good to me. But yeah, you know what? One of the great things about this business are the road trips and the people you meet and the things you do. Uh, unfortunately, most of it you can't talk about because what happens on the road stays on the road. But uh, I've enjoyed it, and it's been one of the great things about my career and now going into cities and looking for certain people at the ballpark or at the rink or at the field that you know is always going to be there, and they remember you, and, you know, it's, it's good to see them. Michael, it's no big deal. It's exactly what you thought your life was going to be like at DeAndre's High School. You knew exactly. You know what? To be honest with you, yeah. Um, you know, I had aspirations to be a professional athlete, and, and you know, really what I really wanted to be, mm -mm. I, I wanted to be a professional, I wanted to be a professional hockey player and, and how this came about, uh, I had played a little pickup hockey. All right. I wasn't a great skater, but I was willing. And we had a football coach when I was in high school, my sophomore year, he and I got sideways. He called me up to varsity my sophomore year and didn't play me. And I was, I was a good player. And I, I should have been playing and he didn't play me. And I'd made up my mind. I'm not coming back. I said, I'm going to play hockey. I'm, I'm going to really work on playing hockey. Well, they, they fired the coach and the other, the new coach who came in, I had for a biology class. And he said, Hey, you know, I hear you're not coming out. I said, no, nah, I'm done, man. I'm going to play hockey. I don't, you know, so he said, why don't you come out? And if you don't like it, you'll still have time. 
Well, I came out. I had a great season. We had a good season. And uh, I came back from my senior year and I gave up hockey. Uh, and I always tell him, I said, you know, I'd have been the first African-American in the Hockey Hall of Fame if it wasn't for you. <laughs> because I think I would have been a good player. And then I think as I did play more, as I got older, I realized I wasn't that good of a player. I wasn't a good, as good of a skater as I needed to be. I thought I had decent hands, um, but I wasn't the skater that I needed to be. And that's only because I just didn't skate enough. And I think where, had where I did you really get had ice a chance. back then? Steinberg skating okay. ring out yeah. in uh, Forest Park. And you had Winterland that was in North County. That was the Blues first practice ring. And it was called Winterland. It's, I think it's a carpet store now. It's on St. Charles Rock Road uh, in Bridgeton. So that's where you had ice. That was the closest ice I saw. Where'd your mom and dad, what did your mom and dad do? My dad was a chief deputy sheriff for the city of St. Louis. And my mother uh, worked for Carnation Milk for a while. And then she became a consultant. Uh, so it was cool. I had a great family background. Uh, my parents were hardworking. Um, set some standards that I tried to abide by, and uh, it, it was cool. I had a great time uh, with my parents. They were they were good to me. Given that title from your dad, I guess the the lay, lay of the land was pretty obvious. At your yeah, house. I didn't have much of a choice, man. And, you know, <laughs> uh, when I got out of school, my first job was with the U.S. Marshal Service, mm -hmm. and I did that for a couple of years. And but I had a passion to try and continue with broadcasting or writing because I did it in college. And then when I got to uh, St. Louis, I wrote for the St. Louis American newspaper. And then that's how I met Jim Holder. And then I said, you know what, I'm going to try, I'm going to stay with it. Now, mind you, I always had a day job. All right. Because I didn't know how this was going to work. And I remember back then, uh, if you went on KMOX on sports open line, it was a hundred bucks, $85 and 15 cents. I still had that check for my first check. It's somewhere in my house. I still have it. Um, but it was $85.15. Now, that's great, but $85.15 didn't get you as far as you thought then as it would now. So you needed to have a day job. So I, I did that for a while. And then once I had a chance to really kind of grow into it, I sold radio in the daytime at KMOX and was on the air in the evening. So I had a really good understanding of how it worked. And I worked for some really good people at the time. Rich Gray was our sales manager who eventually went on to start the all sports format in St. Louis. Um, and you couldn't meet a finer person. And Rich Gray created the St. Louis Eagles AAU basketball, where so many people have come from to go on and have success, not only in the NBA, but in careers. And uh, God rest Rich Gray. So maybe one of the greatest people St. Louis has ever had. You know, we've been fortunate enough on the show. We've had, See Coach Grower, Earl, Rammer. I love making sure that we talk about Rich Gray. I've heard you elsewhere talk about how you think he's the second most important St. Louis media radio guy other than Bob Hyland. There's no doubt. Still to this day, Rich Gray, to give you an indication of how much juice he had. Now, granted, the landscape has changed. We were getting a thousand bucks for a morning drive spot. Wow. Think about that. This you is have, 30 years ago. Yeah. You have you have stations that are giving it, giving it away, five and 10, 20 bucks spots, thousand bucks for morning drive. Now, X is pulling down numbers unheard of, 25 and 26 shares, so they could justify it. But uh, Rich had a, a demeanor about him 
that you wanted to to do well. Uh, he gave you what you needed. He was a man of uh, he was always motivating you. Uh, no was something he just didn't he wasn't accustomed to saying or using or accepting. Um, and he gave us all a chance. I'll tell you a story. When he took over, uh, he created the all sports format. He was kind of running this thing out of his own pocket for a while, you know, as, as sponsorship started to grow. So we had hit a snag and, you know, we, we knew we were, we were fighting. We were trying to stay alive and we knew Rich was paying for us out of his own pocket. And I remember we, us having a meeting, some of the staff, and we decided we were willing to take a pay cut. To, to keep this thing afloat because we, we all knew that it could be something one day. And I got to tell you, David, that's the last time I took a pay cut. Uh, <laughs> I volunteered to take one. Uh, and it was because of Rich Gray and his character. And when you think about people that he brought in and gave a chance to uh, myself and Rammer, Kevin Slayton, Steve in DC, who was a very well-known FM radio uh, show, I mean, he, he did wonders for a lot of us, Jay Randolph, Brian McKenna. I mean, there's so many people that Rich gave a shot to and gave them a chance to throw things on the wall. And one of the things I look back on, we were the first people, first station to carry post-game press conferences live. Right. Now every team does it. Every network does it. We were the first, period. And it, it got a little interesting because we had some nights where uh, you know, we didn't have a, a dump button. We didn't, we weren't you know, on delay. And one of my favorite nights, and I'm sure we can use this, we'll use this term. Bob Barry's a coach, all right, for the St. Louis Blues. And the Blues had given him these three Russian players. Given them because the, the fact that nobody had ever heard of them. They didn't speak English. They, that we thought they had offensive skill and we realized they really didn't. And they really could care less about defense. And so somebody asked Barry about uh, uh, Prokhorov was his name, Vitaly Prokhorov. And they asked him about his, his checking, his defense. And Barry, unbeknownst to anybody, just, you know, Mike, it was a hot mic. He said, that guy couldn't fucking check his hat at the fucking Waldorf Astoria. <laughs> and at that point, next that. Day, yeah, I mean, you know what, now here's, here's the pro about that. It was about 10.30, quarter 11 at night. We had a very low signal at night. So not that many people heard it. But the ones who did got a kick out of it. But we carried that. We did golf on the radio. Uh, we, we were the ones that did remotes around town. Um, we had Kevin Slayton walk to work one day when the Blues got, uh, they eliminated the Blackhawks. Kevin said if he, he, he didn't like Brian Sutter. He said, Blues won't win. He said, I'll walk to work if they do. Well, the Blues eliminate the Blackhawks and Kevin walks to work from Chesterfield. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was something that got us on the map. I mean, you know, and that was one of the fun things about it. You know, you know we've had a other connection between the station and the listeners. This is what I remember. Yeah. Yeah. I remember two things that just make me smile. One is the listener would call in. Two things would happen. One, they would go, I know you're getting ready for a break. I just want to get to this question real quick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, and you know thanks. what? First time caller, long time listener, right. and the season second ticket holder, they would go, I played a little ball, you name it. They had them all. And they go, Michael, that was a great question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it, it, it was so predictable. 
and you know we had great relationships with our listeners uh, uh big al who still calls radio stations caller joe uh onion who i mean baby O, uh, alan horton i mean there were these guys are regulars and we, we'd have a remote they'd all show up and we'd have fun with it and uh it, it's kind of a lost element of talk radio now me personally i'm never taking another phone call uh because i think two things the callers as good as they were have ruined the opportunity of, of being realistic uh because and i've always felt Listeners didn't turn on the radio to hear a caller dominate a show. They listened to me or you or whoever the host is. And you throw in the fact that uh, listeners are not as informed in a lot of cases. And when they spew unfounded statements uh, that lacks credibility, I think it takes a show in the wrong direction. So what I've done when I do have a show is take text messages and try and sift through them and maybe find something that could be a good discussion point. But man, if you hear me take a call on the air, it's, it's, it's either it's by mistake or it's something that's so pertinent that I want to get a feel for the, uh, what's going on in the world. And Michael, the other thing that you did, and maybe this was coming from your sales background, but so let's ballpark this year, let's say early nineties, 92, 93, 94 talk show hosts, did not want to do live spots. It wasn't so much that it was beneath them. It just wasn't their gig. Perhaps coming from your sales background, you were doing live spots. It was you and Carney, man. Yeah. Can it over, man. You know, and I'm still known for a couple of live spots. So a Porter Steakhouse over in Illinois. Two pound cheesecake. Two pound carrot cake (laughs) is what I would say. And I haven't done a commercial for Porter's in 20 something years, at least. And I will still have people that will remind me of that commercial. Uh, yeah, I, I, I embraced it early uh, and it was very profitable for me, but it also gave me a chance to have a great relationship with those owners and, and those people and watching them grow. Uh, um, there's a couple that are still on the air now. Uh, gosh, one on Hampton that Charlie Brennan does. And I can't think of the name of it right now, but I was the first one. I sold that spot to them. And then I ended up doing the commercials, the live reads for it. Uh, but yeah, it was good. Uh, and it made a lot of guys a lot of money. Yeah, you know, I think about myself, you, Jack Carney was the best at it. Frank Opinion has done w- really well with it. Kevin Slayton did an outstanding job. Uh, and Rammer and I used to do them. And so they're supposed to be a minute, right? And, you know, maybe we go on a little longer. So Rammer and I would like look at our watches and then look at each other like, okay, you know, let's wrap this up. All right. You know, and we would have fun with it. And even to this day, when we're around each other, we'll got to look at our watches like, all right, let's knock this shit off. All right. Uh, yeah. But we had a lot of fun with it. You man. time how long the national anthem is? Any time? Oh, yeah. Spot is. Yeah. You know what? If you can't do the anthem in a minute 20, then this should, you should be getting a citation. I mean, it's almost a federal offense, you know, to, to drag it on any longer than what it needs to be. Um, but yeah, we used to have fun, man. And, and, and that's the neat thing about talk radio. Then we didn't know where it was going. We developed some great friendships along the way. And um, I, I cherish those moments so much. And I, and sometimes I miss it. Did you ever host the show? I'm pretty sure you probably did. Cause they were one of my clients when PD, PTs would come in. Dude, I'm the one who was the first, I was the first MC of amateur night. Okay. So, so I did sex Olympics 
And you did amateur night? I did amateur. I was the first one. Alberto Fortuny right? was sure. running it. And Michael. And so, yeah. So they convinced me to come over and host amateur night. And uh, the things that we saw over there um, that just were mind-boggling. So I'll tell you, I, I, I will clean this up as much as I can. So we're doing amateur night one night, right? And we had just had a couple of new sales reps start with us. It's two of them. No, it was three of them. And one of them decided that she was going to perform. All right. <laughs> so, so she decides she's going to perform on stage with another woman on stage, right? And so it's it's so insane. And they're not throwing money on the on the stage. They're throwing ATM cards up there. I mean, it, guys have run out of cash. I mean, it, they are going crazy, all right? So now I'm trying to figure out, you know, how do we get this? Thing? I mean, it's the most insane thing. And, and again, this person who's selling, I, I think I met her like three times. And the other two guys, their, their eyes are like, they cannot believe what the hell's going on. So now when they're done with their act, I just say, to, I say, fellas, we're now playing for second place and third place for this contest because <laughs> I think we've already know who's won this thing. So the very next person, and so now all these guys are standing around, sitting around the stage. The very next person, this woman comes up. She's got some balloon ribbons tied to part of her body. She's got some gravity that's taken over, so they're hanging down to here. And she's got one guy who's sitting there. He's just looking up at her. He is having the time of his life. And you would have thought somebody calling a bomb threat because everyone moved away from the table. The guy had the whole table to himself. And it was hilarious to watch this one guy and this one woman who was maybe one of the five most unattractive women I've ever seen uh, get on stage and perform for this one guy. But, man, we had so much fun. Jay Randolph would go. And... We, we just had a lot of fun. We, we had, and that's what we were doing, man. We were all about having fun. Did that and, rep go to work the next Monday? Yeah, she was, she was there. That it, it was on Wednesday night. It was the okay. first Wednesday of the month. She was there Thursday and we all just kind of looked at her. How you doing? Can't <laughs> wait for next month. You know, cause that's before cell phones. And one of my oh, yeah. funny you stories. You couldn't have gotten people. away with this. You couldn't have gotten away with it. Oh, no way. Uh, there was a certain head coach at Syracuse who was at Syracuse for a very long time coaching the basketball program. Mm -hmm. And the story, as it's been relayed to me, is LaFonzo Ellis and him come walking in. And he just opens up the wallet, puts it on the table and says, have a good night and left. Hey, man, <laughs> those things happen. Uh, it, it was I'm telling you, Dave, it was a. Uh... It was a really fun time. Again, as you mentioned, with cell phones and, and, and internet as we know it today, none of it could happen. Uh, I mean, we'd all be fired, divorced, the whole nine yards. And it, it was it was a time that I truly cherished the, the fun we had. And, and just guys I work with, man, and I still see to this day, there's not a guy that I couldn't tell you a good story about. Well, the bad story around. I tell is I'm never going to run. And again, and I never would run for government anyway, but I'd never run for government because here's how the press conference would go. David Oliver 
trying to run for district. But hey, Dave, there's somebody from college on the phone. Done. Yeah, exactly. You're done. Yeah. And you know what? I'm the same way. I'll never run for a public office. Uh, there's no need to. I've already had enough fun for one lifetime. So uh, and I've, I've done enough serving the public without the title. So I'm not worried about that at all. But yeah, you know, we all have something in our closet that we uh, we look back on. And, and you know what? Here, here's the one thing I want to be clear about. Everything we did was legal. We didn't do anything illegal. We were just having fun. Some people may think from a morality standpoint, it's not something that they would condone, but I don't really care. I didn't do anything illegal. I just had a lot of fun. And uh, you know what? Probably would do it again if I had the opportunity. But then again, I'm that guy that once I've done something, I'm ready to move on to some other challenge. Well, and, you know, as diverse as you are, I think you walk the walk on that one. One question I knew I was going to ask you. There's one more maybe coming later. Where'd you get the affinity for the clothes? I mean, you were um, you were tight before the NBA was on ESPN. <laughs> you know what? I think I got that from my dad. My dad was an impeccable dresser. All right. Um, I mean, he was a guy that was a detail guy. He was an army guy. Um, and I think I got it from him. Uh, and, you know, I had a couple other relatives in my family that really dressed well. So, you know, first impressions are everything. And I've always tried to maintain a reasonable appearance. Uh, and, you know, I take pride in how I look. I think that says a lot. If you take pride in yourself, you take pride in your career. You take pride in your career. Other people pay attention to it. Um, but, yeah, I've always tried to, to stay in tune. But as I've gotten older, I find lanes that I can swim in that are fashionably acceptable. So you won't see me dressing like I'm in a boy band. Uh, or, or something that's probably inappropriate for a person uh, of my age bracket. Uh, it's funny. Michelle Smallman from ESPN is in New York. And I was talking to her today and I said, have you swung by the fashion district? She said, yeah, I saw this and I saw that. And she said, are you into that? I said, no, that's a little too young for me. This is too trendy. You know, I'm a guy who likes to have things that, that I don't wear things that say, hey, look at me. I would rather it be said that looks well on him. And, and that's why that's, that's been my approach. What's so, your favorite yeah. color? You know, I'm a blue guy, but man, I got a lot of earth tones in my closet right now. Gotcha. Uh, but you know, um, I probably have a very eclectic closet as far as suits and sport jackets. I don't have anything like Lindsay Nelson used to wear the longtime broadcaster who would wear these electric sport jackets, but I've, I've got some nice pieces in there. Uh, it's funny. I had to go to an event the other night and I had, I had it was a black tie a wedding and uh, I wore Jordans, you know, the Jordan 11s, the black patent leather with the white trim, red trim. I got more compliments on the shoes than anything else I wore, you know, and this one guy, it was funny. He said, yeah, man, I was going to wear something like that, but my wife wouldn't let me wear them. And so his wife said, yeah, because what you were going to wear weren't Jordans. They were something else. And you can't wear a tuxedo if you're not going to wear shoes that cost more than a tuxedo. And I thought about it and I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. I said, man, you need to listen to your wife more. See, I, but, I vividly know I read a story. Jay-Z said, you know, well, Klaibs pulled it off. So I'm, I'm going down the red carpet with that. Uh, you know, he could take a fashion tip or two from me. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Uh, and, and, you know, here's the other thing about that. 
and you've been around guys in this business for a long time. Most guys in the media dress like unmade beds. Okay. You walk up in that press box and you just look at them and just say, what the hell were you thinking? And some people just don't make that investment. I get it. And so that doesn't make them bad people, but it's easy to stand out in this business when you, when you present yourself in a, in a, in a professional manner. Last question I'll ask you about uh, KSP, which became KZK AM, which became KFNS, which yeah, were you there for the Jerome Bettis? Dude, I hosted that show with Rammer. Well, no, I'm, the, I'm, I'm saying when we talked to the advertisers. Oh, I was there. Okay. Yeah, I'm the reason why somebody didn't get killed that night. Okay. So yeah. uh, is there a part of that story you can tell? Because I think you're in a small group of people who can tell that story. I was there and I've told it privately, <laughs> but I've not told it on the show. So let's start with how we got Jerome Bettis. And not Isaac you, Bruce, which was your suggestion. Well, no, but here's the deal. I had a connection with Jerome. Jerome Bettis' agent was a friend of mine, Lamont, Tom, Lamont Thomas, uh, who's no longer, Lamont Smith, C. Lamont Smith. He's no longer with us. Hmm. And uh, I knew Lamont. He was an agent. And I'd been in the agent business myself. And it was funny because the station who got the radio rights thought that they had the radio rights to the players also. Right. And so I called Lamont and said, hey, man, I, I want to do a radio show with, with your guy. He said, yeah, man, you know, we'll, we'll make it happen. So we get a call from the station manager of the station with the radio rights lodging a complaint about, well, you know, you can't do that. What the hell are you talking about? Well, you can't take players. We have the rights to the, to the yeah, you have the rights to the games. You don't have the right to the players. So we decided to have this big announcement. We were going to have this event. And we're going to welcome Jerome Bettis to St. Louis. I believe it was at the uh, Ritz Carlton. No, it wasn't the Ritz. It was on on uh, Lindbergh and 64. Okay. Frontenac, Plaza Frontenac. That's where it was at. Okay. Uh, whatever the name of that hotel was. But anyway, we had this event. And our station manager had gotten sideways with one of our own on-air talent people. And he said he wanted, he was going to fire him. Well, it had been suggested to him that, well, this isn't the place to fire a guy. We can do this tomorrow. And he'd been advised by it, did not do it. Hey, he wanted to do it anyway. <laughs> so he, he went up to him and told him, hey, yeah, man, this isn't going to work anymore. Uh, you know, we're going to move on. You're done. And he kind of like stuck it to him. Well, this person didn't take it very kindly. And he said, hey, you just he snapped. And it, it got really ugly. It was very contentious. So one of the other management people tried to intervene. And so the guy who was upset said some unkind words to him. And now this guy, it, it was like these two guys were mountains. They were big men. And now he's ready to go. So I get between them and I'm looking at him in the eye. I said, you can't do this now. This is not the time or place. Are you looking at me? And you could see the fire in his eyes because I knew what this guy was capable of doing. Okay. Right. I, I knew his background and I knew had he, had he done anything, we, we, you know, this, this person wouldn't have lived. He would have, he would have died period. He wouldn't have got beaten up. He would have been killed. That's how serious this, this guy. So he's looking me in the eye and I, I can get him to, calm down we we break it up and you know that next day i remember it was on a thursday 
that Friday, everybody was like, you know, and, and so we adjourned, uh, they since moved on and I believe they, there was an apology issue and they, they made peace and they moved on with their lives. But man, it was, it was the closest thing I'd ever seen to somebody actually getting killed right there in front of me. Well, you're right. It wasn't Ritz Carlton. It was the Plaza Frontenac. So you're right on that. And, um, I guess there are two words you don't put back to back. And those words yes. are uncle and Tom. And Tom yes. <laughs> and when he said it and, you know, and at that point, because I was trying to separate him anyway, right. but when he said it, it kind of stuck with me too. And I almost stepped back and said, have at it. <laughs> I almost did it. But I, I felt like there was too much at stake. Careers were at stake. At least one life was at stake. I know right. that. Uh and, and, and again, I knew what kind of damage this guy could do. One phone call and it would have been a wrap. All right. Fortunately, cooler heads prevailed. But man, it, it was one of the scary moments. Uh, it was truly a scary moment. I'll never forget it. And it was just strange as we wrap this up, the story about this, because every important advertiser in St. Louis was at this party. We were trying to mm -hmm. pitch them the Jerome Bettis show. And yeah. so we're doing this in front of the heads of McDonald's and in front of everybody. It was everybody. the biggest event we'd ever had. And, and you know, the, the thing about it, those two guys, I love both of them. They were my friend. And I think had I not been close friends with both of them, I would have stood back and let them go. But I cared about both of them. And I still do. They're still good friends of mine. Uh, but it was just one of those nights, man, where emotions got high and it could have been avoided. If you didn't want them, if you didn't want to hire, keep them around, you could have let them go on Friday when nobody was around. I think showing them up in the manner that you did was the reason why he put, why the button was pushed and he was angry and rightfully so. I think anybody, there's, there's no good way to, to let anybody go, to fire anybody, but that was definitely not the right way to do it. Just lost so much money that day. Yes. That phone got thousands quiet. of dollars went out the door <laughs> that night, never to be seen again. All right, Michael, uh, give me a Bob Ramsey story that not many people know about. Here's one. This is when Rammer and I became best friends. Well, we were already great friends. So the Ram, the Cardinals had just moved to Arizona. And Rammer and I had become good friends with Gene Stallings, the coach. Still a good friend of ours. Uh, talked to coach at least once a month. 87 years old, still working his ranch. So anyway, they're playing over in Kansas City in the exhibition game. Remember how they used to have a Governor's Cup game? Yeah, the Cup thing. So we go over there, Rammer and myself, we ride in his convertible. I made the mistake of falling asleep, taking a nap in a convertible with the sun was beaming. So half of my face was like, I was asleep like that, man. I was, <laughs> I look like a lobster, man. So it's Rammer and a few other media guys, local media guys that we all hop in the car. We're going to go over and surprise coach Stallings. And we did. So we're standing out on the field uh, as he comes out on the field. And he looks at us and I, and I just said, I said, you think you could get rid of us that easy? And he just kind of looked at us and he was so happy to see us. So we go sit in the stands. We're sitting in the end zone and uh, we're cheering for the cheering for the Cardinals. So all of a sudden these peanuts, somebody's throwing peanuts at, at me. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? So I turn around and it's this guy 
and a couple of his boys and his son is white and they're throwing peanuts at me. I said, dude, what's your problem? And he says something derogatory and says, why don't you turn around? And I was like, I tell you what, I got a better idea. Why don't you meet me out on the concourse? And then you can tell me to turn around out there. So I'm, I'm ready to go. And so Rammer gets up and he goes with me. The other guys are like, oh, fellas, let it go. You know, no, you don't let it go. No. So I get out there and I said, dude, what's your problem? Yeah, we just having a little fun. Rammer picks up a, a like a half a cup of beer that somebody has set down and throws it on and said, now I'm having fun, motherfucker. Now I apologize <laughs> to my friend. I kind of look at Rammer and, and Rammer's hotter than I am. And so he's all right, man, we don't want any trouble, man. He's not, we passed trouble. <laughs> apologize to my friend or are you about to find out what trouble's all about? Right. So now the guy apologizes. So his wife is there, she's egging him on. You know, she wants, you know, and so he apologizes. And so now a couple of my boys who I knew in Kansas City were coming up the way. And I'm saying, I said, if they roll up here, we're really going to have a problem. And I didn't even know that they were at the game. So Rammer says to me, he says, you good with this? Yeah, I'm good. He said, all right. He said, don't you ever have fun like that? And we turn around and walk away. And Rammer is like, don't turn around because they may sober up. And we walk back to our (laughs) seats. And that was the moment that I, and as I said to you earlier, he was already a great friend, but he was my best friend because he had my back and I've had his back. Oh, here's a great story about Rammer. So, you know, fuzzball, you know, you play fuzzball when you were younger. So some guys in my neighborhood, we would always play fuzzball. And so we were going to have a little father son deal at this in the schoolyard. And I'm telling Rammer about it. And so a couple of my guys knew Rammer and they were like, hey, man, call Rammer out. See if he wants to play. So I call Rammer. He comes out to play. So they say, oh, here comes the white guy, you know. And we really, my my friends really didn't have time to pay attention to color, but obviously Rammer stood out. So the first pitch Rammer saw, he hit a home run, right? And so everybody's like, huh, okay. The next time he came up, he hit another home run and just did a bat drop. It just got turned around like, all right, it was basically like, what else you got? The Tom Lawless guys deal. were guys were howling man and we, we were falling over each other laughing man and you know because he was out he was one of the boys i mean he had proven he, he had earned his stripes and every year we would have this thing they would always say make sure we call ramrod that's what they used to call ramrod and uh we had so much fun with him here's my last rammer story so st louis you were playing grambling right and so Rammer used to be the voice of the Tigers, the Grambling Tigers. They call him the White Tiger. Right. Uh, he was play-by-play voice. And so we're on the bus, and I remember it was Bonner and Douglas and Gray, and they were giving Rammer grief by, yeah, man, you down here with the brothers, man. You might want to hang out with us, man, so nothing will happen to you. So Rammer didn't say anything. So we get to the hotel, and, like, these two hot black females recognize it, right? And so Rammer said to, said to the place, he said, I done had more black women than you have. So you might want to slow your roll on that partner. Just like that, man. And we, I was howling, man. I mean, he put them in there and they never, ever mess with Rammer again as long as they were there, man. But these guys were funny. And that's the one thing we had so much fun doing Billiken basketball because Rammer and I, you know, uh, the, the guy who had the rights 
we had to room together. We didn't have our own separate rooms like we have in, in pro sports. So, you know, when you're rooming with a guy, you get to know him. And he's my best friend for so many reasons. But, man, back then, we, we, we had so much fun laughing. But he put them guys in check, and they never messed with him again. But although he used to have this one shirt, you know, it's kind of like a polo logo, but it was an oil rig. And they used to call him the oil baron because he was like a little oil rig right here where the, where the Ralph Lauren logo would be. And he would wear that shirt. They say, he's the oil, but here come the oil baron. Where's your oil? So they would give him grief about that. But I can't think of a better person that I could have fun with and grow with than him. And as I mentioned, he's my best friend. Uh, I'm his firstborn's godfather. And uh, to watch him grow in his career and be in, you know, the Billiken Hall of Fame and uh, his high school Hall of Fame and Lindenwood Hall of Fame. Uh, he's in Mike Claiborne's Hall of Fame as far as being a great friend. I think he's going to retire with two titles. One's going to be longest play-by-play career at a school he didn't go to. Yeah. And yeah, secondly, yeah. probably longest play-by-play career of somebody who didn't play division one basketball. Well, here's another one he's got. He's the longest play-by-play man in St. Louis. Now that Mike Shannon's retired. That's right. Oh, we got to touch on Mike, but yeah. I mean, the thing that's great about Rammer is he's consistent. He's very, there's no apologies from him. We've had him on the show before. And one of the things I remember the story was I walked up to him at a Lester's, right? Hadn't seen him in a while. He was having a corned beef sandwich or whatever, and he'd gone to a new station. So I walked up to him and I was like, hey, you sound like you're really having fun. And he goes, well, I'm glad it sounds that way. <laughs> he, You know what? He, he He's so good. And he always thinks he, he should be better. And I'm like, dude, you rock, man. I, I remember. And here's when I really appreciated him. We're in spring training. And so, you know, I'd have to go online and listen to the games, especially because when we're in spring training, Billikens were always in the conference tournament or in the NCAA tournament. So, you know, why would I want to watch some joker on TV that doesn't know anything about St. Louis? I want to hear Rammer and Earl. And there have been some classic games that they call during that time of the year that almost brings a tear to my eye because I'm so proud of both of them. And what they've been able to do. And I'm an emotional guy, man. I cry. As Jack Buck would say, I cried a card trick. I cry if you open up a can of tuna fish on the right day of the week. I mean, I get emotional about watching good things happen. I get emotional when I hear my friends nail things. If it's a call or something they've done, I get emotional about it. So, gosh, I'm trying to think. The last time they won the conference tournament, I'm balling, man, because I'm listening to those guys and they're nailing the call. They're setting the scene and, you know, they're excited. Those are the things that, that, that uh, I, I still get a kick out of loving, listening and watching my friends do well. You've done a lot of great things with friends like Ramsey and, and Rob Fisher. That's my guy. Fish. Um, Jay, hey, by the way, not to get public about it, but when he went through what he went through. Yeah. Uh, he said, maybe he could not have been that journey without you. Uh, 
yeah, it was uh, it was it was tough because uh, it's my guy. I've known him since he was 17 years old, and uh, he was having a tough time. And you know, I was there for him, and like I'd be for any friend, but uh, man, that was uh, it was it was tough. It was tough, man, and he's gonna be okay because um, he's got a great base. And uh, yeah, that was uh, that, that might be one of the toughest things I've dealt with. Uh, and I've had people die, and you know, people you work with, and but I think because we were so close, and he's like a little brother to me. And when he was dealing with that, and, and he still does. I mean, it's not something that goes away. And he reached out and I, man, I got you, man. You don't, I'm here for whatever. And, uh, and he, he, he knew it. And I've, I've been there for everything in his life from when it, when he decided he was going to go to Memphis. Well, I made a suggestion because there was a situation in St. Louis that I didn't think he was going to grow from. And, uh, I said, Hey man, it's okay to try something else. And for him to be doing basketball when, I don't think Fish knew how many people were on the floor before he got to Memphis in basketball because <laughs> he really didn't care. It was either hockey or baseball. And to see the great job that he's doing now, uh, that 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 makes me water up as well. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was fun, man. And to watch him grow and to be so respected now in the NBA. I know guys in the NBA and they always, hey, I saw your boy Fish, man. You know, like, all right, that's my guy. You're right. And that's what makes it fun. But, you know, David, you, you've been at this a while yourself, man. You know, it, it's more than being on the air with people. You get to know them and you know about their family and their situations. And as I mentioned, I've known Fish since he was 17, 18 years old. Know his parents, know his sisters, know his wife, know his kids, uh, the whole nine yards. And, and, and that, I can say that about a lot of guys. But, man, there's a handful of guys. You mentioned Fish. Rammer, Jay Jr. Uh, that's my crew, man. That, that, that's my crew. Johnny Marisak, uh, Tony Hubert, you know, all those guys. And we started together that you don't see them as much as you want to. But, man, when you see them calling you or you run into them, man, it's, it, it, it makes your day. And like I was saying, I saw Kevin a couple of months ago. And we just stood back and just caught up, man. And, you know, when you've been at it for a while, you really appreciate it. Just like I appreciate guys I work with today. Uh, they don't have as much time in, but I really appreciate what they've meant to me. I told Fish the next time Spike Lee comes through Memphis, he's got to go, it's got to be the shoes. <laughs> and you know what? It, for our listeners and your viewers, Fish has this collection of shoes and socks uh, as Craig Sager, the late Craig Sager, uh, a really good guy, by the way, would wear those really bright jackets on TNT right. and the players would give him grief about it. Fish went the shoe route and he's kind of like the Craig Sager of shoes around the NBA. And uh, he's got a pretty good reputation, uh, not only for the shoes, but being a good analyst and a good sideline reporter and a great host for the pre and post for the Memphis Grizzlies. Michael, we're running up on time. I know your schedule's not as flexible as mine, but what I try to do with overtime is document St. Louis, right? So whether it be talking to 
St. Patrick's Center, whether it be talking to emos, whether it be talking to the online on-air guys. I can't tell the Michael Claiborne story without bringing up the fact that you were instrumental in bringing Brian Burrow to St. Louis. (laughs) Man, uh, so Brian and I knew each other. And uh, Larry Starks was a sports editor at the Post at the time. And he called me one day and he said, hey, listen, I need a favor. I said, what do you need? He said, you know, Brian Burwell. I said, yeah. He said, man, we got a chance to get him, but he's not sure if he wants to come to St. Louis. And we were, we were competing against a couple other newspapers. I said, all right, let me give him a call. So I called him and I said, hey, man, uh, I need you in St. Louis. And here's why. And I gave him all the reasons. And I said, I can hook you up with this. I can get you that. His family hung out with my family. I, when I would have a get together, I would include him and his family and they knew my friends. We, he knew all my golf buddies and uh, you know, he was such a timely writer. I mean, Brian was ahead of the curve about challenging people and calling out issues. Uh, and he was witty. Now we now people would tell you, he and I cannot play golf together because I, we used to accuse the other guy of cheating. I'm like, man, there's no way you could have had a five on that, on that hole. So we would have fun with it. And so when we would play with another person, we'd always, what'd he shoot? What really, what, what did he do? Oh man, he was okay. Oh man, he was terrible. And so we would go back and forth and needle each other. And, and, but he, you know, he made people accountable. I remember that column, he, he ripped Albert Pujols for being a jackass. All right. And Albert was like, you know, nobody ever talked about Albert like that. And so Albert, you know, you know, Brian was one of those guys, if he had something to say about you, you could, you, he'd be the easiest guy to find the next day. So he's at the ballpark and he and Albert walk out in the right field and Albert's telling him, well, you know, I had some issues going on. I had some family issues. He said, well, yeah, what about all the mother days you were a jerk? <laughs> you know, if you got some of your family's, you know, is it terminal or what? And Brian called him out on it. And, you know, Albert saw what, what, it, what it meant. Uh, but he was, a, he was a huge guy, man. And, and you know what? He didn't have a problem if you didn't like him. He didn't have a problem if you disagreed. Uh, but he was, he was one of the greats, man. And when we lost him, we lost him a little too early. I'll never forget it was October 16th. Uh, we were playing the Giants. And we, we just lost. And he called me. And he said, hey, uh, you got a minute? I'm like, yeah. He said, uh, I need to talk to you about something. I'm like, what, what's up? He said, uh, I have melanoma, cancer. And I said, huh? He said, I have melanoma, cancer. And I said, now, who are we talking about here? He said, you talking about me? I said, well, wait a minute, man. Black people don't get melanoma, cancer, man. That's for white people, man. <laughs> you know, just like that. And he started to laugh. He said, that's why I wanted to call you first and tell you, because I knew you'd find a way to <laughs> get me through this. And so when I would go see him, I made it my business to see him or talk to him every day. And I'd go to his house. I remember one day Frank and I, and I think Rammer, we all went to his house. And it was a Saturday and we were sitting around. And I'm starting to make him like, cause I never would ask him how you doing. Hell, I know he wasn't doing well. Okay. So, you know, people who get sick, man, they don't want you to ask you how you do. Hell, how do you think I'm doing? So anyway, I said something and he laughed and it started to really hurt. Mm. 
And I never forget. Uh, he, we, we left that day, and I, I had a feeling that was the last time I was going to see him. And I think it was a Tuesday morning is when he passed. And uh, he's a good man. He's a wonderful person. Uh, his wife Dawn was. Brian used to always talk about how he would spend all this money on tennis lessons. He said, man, she, I said, how's Dawn and Tessa? He said, shit, she should qualify for Wimbledon this year, as many lessons as she are paying for. And we laugh about that. And, but he was a good man. Uh, he had a great heart. And I think it was indicative of how many people showed up for his funeral for on a national scale. Uh, Michael Wilbon and David Aldridge. I remember the Rams were playing. It was a Thursday night game. And I'm trying to think of who they were playing. Uh, and whoever it was, the coach showed up. Uh, but, I mean, he was that guy where everybody respected him. Uh, and, again, they may not have agreed, but they respected him. And, and we miss him. And we've had some columnists come through here that have done a nice job. Uh, but we, we don't have anyone with the, the wit and edge of Brian Burwell. I think I heard you say somewhere, show tunes fix everything. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he was – he was something, you know, no, I'll tell you what happened. Show tunes. And this is a situation. This is, I'm going to talk about Jim Hayes for a minute. Okay. So you we're got playing. Time? We good? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm, uh, I, I got a few more minutes. Anyway, uh, we're in Chicago. It's opening weekend, opening week in Chicago. And I had a friend of mine who I'd known forever. Oh, this woman, I've known her since high school. And she had, she was dying of cancer. And I get a phone call and we get rained out. I'll never forget. We get rained out. And I was going to go home to see her because I felt like we were near the end. And I get a call from her and she says, hey, you know, I think I'm near the end. I just want you to live for me. Just live for me. That's all I want you to do. And, man, I was so helpless. I couldn't get on a plane to get back to St. Louis. I knew that by the time I got there, she would be gone. And, and she checked out right after she hung up the phone. Right. So I'm sitting in the dugout. I am a disaster the next day. And a few people had heard about what had happened, you know, passing on the condolences. Jim Hayes comes up and he said, hey, buddy, I'm sorry for your loss. He said, I'll do anything to perk you up. And all of a sudden he starts singing show tunes. <laughs> and I forgot the one he starts singing. And I, my head is now. You are the, and I look up and he's going in his routine in the dugout. <clears throat> Obviously my mind is, is gone off the, the path now. Cause I'm watching him try and amuse me. And I, I'll never forget that moment, man, because it was really a dark moment for me losing a friend in that manner and not being a, being there to do more. And, uh, and, and that's why Jim Hayes is one of my, my favorite people on the planet. Nobody I've ever worked with works harder at what he does in Jim Hayes. If you only knew the things he does to get ready for a game, uh, you just shake your head. Uh, that's my guy, period. Love working with him. I missed him. And he finally got on the road for the last road trip of the season in L.A., and I was just, I was more happy for him than I was anything else because uh, this guy w is as good as they come. Another guy you're not going to be working with anymore, but you had some great times with, take as long as you want. I say Mike Shannon, you say. I don't know if one word could sum him up. 
sure. teammate. He, you know, Mike was everything to me or is everything. He was a great teammate. He taught me how to do things in the business as a broadcaster on the road and at home. He taught me the game, the things to look for. I remember the first game I did at Wrigley Field with him. He said, the first thing you do is don't look at the scoreboard because they never get it right. And, you know, the Wrigley Field scoreboard is kind of herky-jerky anyway. He said, don't pay attention to that thing because they'll, they'll screw it up. Uh, he taught me how to be a parent, uh, how to be a father. Man, he never had a conversation with his kids without saying he loved them before and after the conversation. Uh, he was always there for his kids. Um, he's a good teammate, man. The way he took care of John Rooney and Ricky Horton and Jim Jackson and myself, we were his crew, man. And, and David, one of the things that I've always appreciated about him, and it's something that's almost a lost art, when you are having a conversation, you and I are having a conversation and somebody comes up and you continue to ignore them instead of saying, hey, let me introduce your friend of mine. This is David Oliver. That's the way Mike introduced me to so many people. He was stopping mid-conversation to make sure he, that person he was talking to knew who I was compared to people now who come up and interrupt a conversation and which is the most rude thing you can ever do. And when you do it to me, I'm going to check you on the spot. So anybody's watching this, if you see me having a conversation, I will give you a chance to get yourself involved, but do not butt in because then we're going to have a bigger problem. Mm -hmm. But, but, but Mike, man, was, uh, he was, he was everything to a lot of people, man. But I think teammate is the best word I can use in how he did things. Uh, he was always inclusive. I remember, when I was first hanging out with him, he never let me pay for dinner or anything else. And one day I was like, Hey man, you know, I got to check, you know, they pay me too. I can pay for this. And we got in an argument. He said, no, no, no. You, you don't understand. You take care of the next guy. Uh, when I broke in baseball, I had a bunch of guys that never let me go in my pocket and it's my turn to take care of you. You make sure you take care of the other guys. And you can ask the young guys who work with me, when we're on the road or out or when they come to spring training, they, they know they, that I'm going to, I'm going to take care of it, you know? And, and, and I always tell them, I don't want anything from you other than you making sure you do it to somebody else. So uh, that, that's how that kind of shakes out. But Mike Shannon has set so many good examples for me that I hope I can pass on to other people um, because he is, uh, as I said, great teammate. Michael, how old are your daughters? Old enough where they don't ask for money anymore. Uh, 30 and 27. So and here's I'm what so I'm proud of both you, of them. Here's what I'm going to thank you for. I bet they can communicate. And I bet that they are able, like, unlike most of their peers, to have conversations and, and real dialogue with their friends. Yes. Yeah. They are very good communicators. I mean, granted, texting is fashionable, but they're both in the talk business, not broadcasting, but they, they deal with people. Uh, it's amazing. My youngest daughter, she knows, I think she knows more people than me. And, and I say that where now when I go to events, I run into her friends. So what I do is take a picture. I take a selfie with a friend of hers and I send it to her and she gets a kick out of it. And so I'm, I'm at an event, this, this wedding last Friday. 
and I see this young lady, I know her mother. And so she said, you don't remember me? I'm Alex. Said, oh, yeah. And so I sent Alex a picture. She said, yeah, Alex and I are in a wedding. We're in, we're in a wedding in Mexico here pretty soon. And she knows more about what's going on than I do. <laughs> but uh, her mother always says that she has that that it factor that you have as far as not, never meeting a stranger. Right. And, and I'm proud of them and what they've been able to do with their lives. And uh, they still make me laugh. They still, my youngest one is so much like me. We barely get along, but she knows that she calls me. I'm going to be there for her. And uh, we, we still have a good time. We have some good laughs. I, it was a couple of years ago. She was working in Cleveland and it was Thanksgiving. And it was going to be one of the first Thanksgiving. She wasn't going to be home. And so Thanksgiving morning, I called her and I said, what are you doing? She said, well, nothing. I'm in Cleveland. There's nothing to do in Cleveland. And I said, well, why don't you come to go to the airport? She said, what would I go there for? I said, come pick me up so we can go to dinner. So I made reservations at a restaurant that was not far from where she lived. And we hung out there and we had the time of our lives, just dad and daughter having a good time, catching up, having a good laugh, having a good Thanksgiving dinner. I never wanted her to feel like she was not going to be around family doing holidays because we were big on, on being together uh, for holidays. And while her mother and I are no, no longer married, we still get together for holidays. I spend part of that, that holiday period with, with my kids and, and, and their mother. And, and I'm very fortunate to be able to do that. Well, the one thing they don't tell you as a parent or parent to be is that overwhelming thankfulness you have when you know your children are in a good place. Yeah, you're right. That, that's crazy. something that we all hope for. Uh, we should never take it for granted in the, in the times that we live in. Uh, but you know what? They've, they've got good careers. Uh, as I said, you know, people say, well, how are your kids doing? I said, well, they don't ask for money. So I think everything's okay. Although uh, my their mother will say, well, they're going to ask you for money when they're going to get married. And my response is my my ex-wife and I paid for our own wedding. We had like 400 people there sit down, dinner, the whole nine yards. I think paying for your own wedding is a family tradition that we should maintain. <laughs> and she said, and they will promptly hang up on you when you tell them that. on that. All right, Michael, last question. Second question I knew I would ask you. You're a golfer. Every golfer has the best putt I ever sunk story. Give me your best putt I ever sank story. Man, that's a really good question. Uh, I should know this because I haven't sank that many. You'd think <laughs> they'd stand out. Uh, I'm just trying to think. Who was I playing with? And I sunk a big putt. I've been blessed to play with a lot of famous people. Uh, but I don't, I can't really think of one uh, that stands out. Man, that, you know, that's, that's one. I can tell you a quick golf story uh, that involves Rob Fisher. I don't know if Fish, if you've had him on yet, and he told you the Rick Barry story. I have a Rick Barry story. So you were there. You might have been there. Anyway, I'm going to tell mine in 20 seconds. All right, and you go tell ahead. Yours. We were at a pro-am. Might not have been you. I apologize. It's three kids ago. Who knows? Barry shows up late for the pro-am, like hole four, right? Mm-hmm. And he's a jerk. He's telling everybody what swings they're not hitting. I mean, 
it didn't take same even holes before you had had enough of Rick Barrett. Well, so I'm looking at a stupid putt that give me it a thousand times. I'm never going to make it. And he's going out of his way to coach me on this stupid, never going to happen putt. Right. I actually looked at Rick Barry and I said, please shut the fuck up. And then I, <laughs> I did hit the putt. <laughs> hey, oh, I know I got one for you. So I'm sure you've had Jay on. Did Jay tell you about the times when he played with Michael Jordan? No, go. So Jordan's in town for something. I think his kid was at a basketball camp. So he calls me and he said, hey, I want to play golf. I said, all right. So we got a group of guys that we go out and play. We play Wing Haven. And I'll never forget, we, we're at the turn. And he says, hey, Mike, you got anybody out here that's got any money? Because this guy's out of money now. He's been playing with the pro. He cleaned them out. So he wants to play 18 more. He said, man, don't you have anybody else you can play that, that wants to play? And I'm, you know, I'm not, I wasn't that good. I said, I got one guy. And I called Jay. And I forgot where they were playing. So we're Jay shows junior, up. Right? Yeah, Jay Jr. Okay. So Jay shows up and now it's on. And Jordan realizes that he might have himself, a, he might have a problem here because Jay was playing well at the time. So now he's getting in Jay's head. Jay standing over putts. Fat motherfucker, you can't make that putt. I mean, he's really get, trying to get in Jay's head. So when it's over, Jay calls. He says, I said, well, how'd it go? He said, I did okay. He said, but I can see how this guy is so successful because of the way he gets in people's heads. So fast forward a few years later, we're playing. And so I'm in a putting situation and I'm standing over it. And he says, I don't know why we even wasting this time. You know, you're not going to make it. And I said, you know, last time I heard you say that about somebody from St. Louis was Jay Jr., you remember how that turned out, don't you? <laughs> and I made the putt and I just looked at him like, okay, what else you got? And so he's pissed at me because I won't bet with him. I did it one time and won in a card game and have never bet with him again. Cause a, I don't carry that kind of money and B I'm not that obsessed with it, but uh, Jay had a good round with him. And, and to this day, when I would see Jordan, he would always ask about Jay of all the people he's played with. He will always ask about him. And as as does John Daly when he was in town recently. Hey, I know you do a lot of these. Hope you had a good time. Man, I had a blast. And I'm sorry we couldn't do this, folks. Jay, uh, Dave has been trying to reach out to me for some time. And the schedules just weren't working. And, you know, I knew that when the season ended, I was going to do this. And I'm glad I did. Uh, this has been a great. By the way, this was your show back in the radio days, Overtime. That's there's something I'm almost embarrassed you remember, but oh, man, it was dude, me. I, hey, I don't forget much, man. It was me. It was fish. Yeah. And and Michael, it was a midnight to two show, right? Kim yeah, exactly. The station. exactly. And you'll appreciate this. We had one rule. You could be late if you needed to be late. Cause you were having a good time. Yeah. At that time of night, what else are you doing? Right. <laughs> Maggie O'Brien's after the game. There you go, man. It was, you know what? And, and, you, as you've grown in your career, you look back on those days and, and you think about how much fun you had. And, and as we talked about it earlier, thanks, there was no cell phone, camera phones or any of that. We really had fun. We were all young. Uh, I was a little older than you guys. I was married, but, you know, I had a great situation at home and watching guys like yourself grow into doing other things and having fun. 
is is the most rewarding thing I think I can say about my my career in the sports talk radio. Go have fun in Jupiter, man. Dude, it, it, you know what? I can't wait to get there. If the weather drops anymore, I'll be there before the holidays start. You coming down? You got to come down there, man. Do your show. Oh, down you don't there. want to throw that out publicly? Then I'll have to claim it. And you'll have to put me on a couch someplace. Well, I don't know about a couch, but we can find some lodging somewhere. Right, we'll hook you up with Joe Roderick and get you an Airbnb, man. If you just can hang promise out. that we see Bobby Orr at the uh, paint store. Bobby Orr at the uh, Home Depot one day. <laughs> Never forget it. And I'm a huge Bobby Orr. You know what? I I'm going to tell you. There's only a handful of athletes I really kind of kind of fawn over. Uh, Julius Irving, Bobby Orr. Those two guys are like, you know, my idols when I was growing up. And I met him. Well, I met him through Joe Micheletti on a radio show. And I'll never forget, he said, the, the two greatest compliments I've ever had on radio, Julius Irving and Bobby Orr. I interviewed them both. And at the end of the conversation, they, they said how much they enjoy talking to me. And they both said, man, you really know your hockey and you really know your basketball. And I remember when I ended the, the interview, I said, that's Julia Serving. That's Bobby Orr, separate interviews. And I said, we're going to take a break. I'm going to go smoke a cigarette because it doesn't get any better than this talking <laughs> to those guys. So I run into Bobby Orr in a Home Depot on Jupiter. He's in the paint section. And I just kind of go up to, excuse me. Bobby or he said, yeah, I said, I'm Mike Claiborne. You don't, you don't know me. I met you through Joe Micheletti. We did a radio show. He said, yeah, St. Louis. I remember you. He said, I don't, I, obviously this is the first time we've actually met in person, but I remember the interview because you asked me about Jacques LaPerriere because Jacques LaPerriere was a defenseman for the Canadians who really gave Bobby Orr fits because they would match him up with Orr. And for some reason, LaPierre is this big, long, lanky guy, had great reach and had great anticipation. And he really kind of gave or if you want to call it problems, as far as him not being able to do some of the things. And he remembered me bringing that up. And that's when he said, you really know your hockey for you to remember that. And so we stood in the paint section. Neither one of us really remember what we were there for, but it was one of the great visits I've ever had. All right, Michael, Allied, this is the last question. You're an <laughs> African-American guy who knows hockey really, really well. Yeah. Draw me a line, man. Where, if ever, was there a time where you wanted people to know you wanted hockey and then the line, and then you wanted them to feel stupid that they shouldn't just think because you're African-American, you didn't know hockey. Man, that's a good question. Cause I've heard that so much in my life, man, you know, for a black guy, you really know hockey. No, I know hockey period. You know, that's not even we don't even have to play the color card here. OK, I know the game better than most people who talk about it. I know it as well as anybody in town in St. Louis that didn't play. OK, there's a couple of guys who I have respect for their knowledge, but I'll throw mine on the table with anybody. Uh, but I used to hear that a lot. I don't hear it as much because I think people have accepted me for being a knowledgeable hockey guy, which is how it should be. But I accept the role of being African-American and, and promoting the game and letting other people know it's okay to know hockey. Uh, for instance, uh, Everett Fitzhugh, who is a uh, Seattle Kraken. Their play-by-play guy on radio is African-American. Their color analyst on TV is African-American and their beat writer is African-American. And I never thought I'd see that. And I, I couldn't be happier to see the growth 
uh, which says hockey is for everyone. You know, it's, it's a wonderful sport. I love it. I, I, I can't get enough of it. Uh, but I, I'm glad to see that we're making progress. And I think the NHL has been as progressive when it comes to inclusion of all races and all nationalities. I think they've done as good of a job as any sport we have going for, going for us right now. And that being said, how many African-Americans have called the last strike of a World Series game? I can't think of one. Yeah. I don't know if it's ever happened. Right. Uh, it, it'll happen. You know what? I'll tell you who it'll be. It'll be Alan Porter. Alan Porter is one of the best umpires in the game right now, and he's on that fast track to be a consistent postseason umpire. Michael, thanks for your time. Go take care of what you got to do. Good visit with you, man. Thanks for having me. And uh, we won't do we won't wait as long next time to do this. <laughs> and another one for the books. See what I said about the ending? We'll be back Thursday bringing it hard. Happy birthday, Stephen. And as we do, thanks for your time this time. Till next time, so long.